Uh, If you have your Bible, uh, I want to invite you to open up to Titus chapter 2. We'll be in the first 10 verses of Titus 2 this morning. And uh, if you want to use one of the Bibles we provided for you there in the rows, we'll be on page 998. So that's page 998 of the Bibles that we provided for you there in your rows. And as you turn there, let me just ask you a question. This is probably uh, a pretty, you know, easy one to to answer. But uh, how many of you this morning... When you rolled out of bed and stumbled into the bathroom, you know, took a look in the mirror, and maybe if you're like Pastor John, you know, kind of gave a wink to yourself and, you know, shot a little gun there and just started feeling good about yourself uh, this morning. Uh, How many of you looked in the mirror and said, you know what, I am going to try to make myself look less attractive today? Anyone? Do that, decide to do that. I mean, did any of you ladies, I can't see everyone perfectly yet, but I mean, did anyone take your lipstick and rather, you know, doing your thing there, uh, did you just kind of put it under your eyebrow, uh, eyebrows, eyes like you are, uh, you know, Tom Brady playing for the Patriots? Did anyone choose to do? No, okay. Uh, what about, you know, five layers of, of blush or mascara or eyeliner or you can fill in? Anyone in church choose to? Okay. Uh, what about you men? Okay, because men, you know, we may not act like we care about how we look, but we still care a bit, hopefully a little bit. Uh, how many of you men, you know, took your hair gel and just, you know, piled a big glob on the top of your head like you were going to wear it as a yarmulke today? I mean, did anyone, <laughs> did anyone choose to do that? We have one person, okay? Uh, we're, pray- we're praying for you, man. Um, so um, <laughs> no one does that, right? No one went into your closet this morning and found the shirt that you had 20 years ago and said, you know what, it may be way out of style, but I'm going to rock that anyway. I mean, did anyone choose to do that now? Okay. So, so we would agree, all right, that, that most people make an effort, however great or small, to, to make themselves presentable and attractive really on a daily basis. And I'm not here this morning to tell you that's not a good idea. In fact, some of us probably need to work on that a little bit more, right? But why is it, think about this, why is it that, particularly in our culture, our country, that $10 billion are spent every year on cosmetics alone? You can throw another Eight billion on top of that for for Botox and and plastic surgery. I mean, why is it that 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 even beautiful women choose to 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 go and and go the extra mile? And, you know, makeup's not enough, and this exercise program is not enough. But I've got to do this, this, and this to to be attractive. This is something that the media feeds us, and I would post to you that the reason we chase after beauty and attractiveness is not simply because that's what glamour and allure and cosmo and men's health and GQ are telling us that we need to do. I would say what's underneath all of that is this craving that that people would notice us, that people would think that we have it together, that the people would love us for what we look like. Now, what if, what if God did not create us to be obsessed with our external appearance and beauty? But what if God made us not to be concerned with how good we look, but to 
live our lives in such a way that points to how great he looks? What if God made us so that we would live our lives in such a way that we point to how beautifully glorious he is? In fact, that is the reason he made us. And that's what Paul is going to get at in Titus 2 this morning. He's going to teach us that the, the key to true beauty is found right here. All right? These verses are going to teach us that the church should adorn the doctrine of God through godly living and discipleship relationships. Okay? The church should adorn, light up the doctrine of God through godly living and discipleship relationships. I want to read the, the whole uh, passage that we're going to be uh, studying and, and hearing this morning here in Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. So, so follow along with me as I read these for us. Titus, uh, T- Paul's continuing to write to this, this son in the, in the faith. His name was Titus, and he, he says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be subject, submissive to their own masters in everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So to unpack these 10 verses for us this morning, I want to give us three primary encouragements that I think will really help us out to understand what our lives can look like in order to point to God's greatness and glory. The first one is this, to cultivate godliness through living out the implications of sound doctrine. Okay, you got that? Cultivate godliness through living out the implications of sound doctrine. So Paul here is saying that sound doctrine is essential to a healthy Christian life. And in contrast to what he has just described at the end of chapter one of these false teachers who were out for themselves with their own agenda, empty talkers and deceivers, Titus, in contradiction to that, in contrast to those false teachers, is to teach sound doctrine that will lead these people in Crete toward godliness. Now, let's talk about sound doctrine for a minute. I couldn't, you know, unpack everything last week, so I maybe should have thrown this in last week's sermon, but this is so, so helpful for us. Here's just some sound doctrine for you. It's, it comes out of the, the period of the Reformation, the five solas as, as we know them, okay? So I want to give them to you this morning. And, and this is all of the teaching that you hear at Redemption Hill is, is, should be lining up with this understanding, okay? So number one, sola scriptura. It means that scripture alone is the sole authority for our faith and our practice. 
It doesn't mean that there's not value in tradition. It doesn't mean that there's not value in, you know, uh, wisdom from, from, from uh, experience and, and reason. But, but ultimately, all of those other categories have to answer to what God has revealed in the Scripture. So Scripture alone is sufficient for faith and practice. It's what we live our lives by. Number two, solus Christus, Christ alone. That the Jesus is the way, the mediator, as 1 Timothy 2.5 says, to God. And we can have a relationship with the God who made us through Christ and Christ alone. Not our good works, not anything that we could do to kind of work our way to God. It's through Christ alone. And then how does that happen? Well, it is then sola gratia, which is by grace alone, God's grace alone. So how are we connected to Christ? It's by God's grace this unmerited favor and kindness that he's poured out on us. Nothing that we could do to earn it, but because he has moved toward us and provided us salvation in Christ, that we can be brought back to God by grace alone, through faith alone, sola fide. So it's, it's faith is, is, is the agent by which grace flows and, and saves us as we look to Christ to be our righteousness and salvation. And then finally, all of this, is solely Deo Gloria, to God's glory alone. So that's what we want to trumpet week in, week out, that, that Scripture is our sole guide. Everything answers to what God has revealed in His Word, that we can have this bright, vibrant relationship with God through Christ, by God's grace, through faith alone, to His glory alone. Every day of our life really prayerfully should be reflective of these truths. This is sound doctrine. Now, what we find in Titus 2 is Paul says, you, however, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then we might expect Paul, because Paul was theologian par excellence, right? I mean, he, like, he had it all together. He could unpack systematic theology with the best of them. So we might think in verse 2 that Paul's going to say, you know what? Hey, here's some doctrine of creation. And, you know, we'll move into the doctrine of God. You know, we'll talk about his triune nature, Father, Son, Spirit. We'll address his communicable and incommunicable attributes. And then we'll move on to the doctrine of man and how that we've sinned and the, the fall has affected us entirely. And we're in need of this salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. We'll move into ecclesiology, eschatology. Does Paul do that? Is, is that what Paul does in Titus 2? No. Paul says, teach what accords with sound doctrine and then he moves in, not to a systematic theology of everything that we should be growing in our knowledge of God, but he moves into practical encouragement for daily life. So when Paul says, teach what accords with sound doctrine, what he's saying is, teach in such a way that people's lives will reflect and match up and be consonant with the doctrine, the teaching that is true of God and what he has given to us. This is why each Sunday, each week, we seek to preach applicational sermons, okay? We agree with those who said true preaching is the explanation of God's word and the application of it. So we, it's, not just, it's not just truth, okay? We're not trying to become like spiritual encyclopedias. It's truth for life. 
It's truth that, that it actually matters, you know, for, for Sunday afternoon and Tuesday morning and Thursday night, and you can fill in the blank there. So we want to, we don't make God's word relevant. We just show how it is relevant for our lives. That's our job. And so Paul is going to get into some specific encouragements for these new believers in Crete. And unfortunately, we do not have the time this morning to really pick each one of these characteristics apart and drill down on each of them. But I do want to give us some, some, a few encouragements and handles on how he brings it to us here in this chapter. So before we get started, I, I just want to say if, if the specific instruction, because you know it says older men and older women and younger men and younger women and instructions for Titus and for, for slaves. And, and so if, if each of these you know, categories may not fit you, I would just say pay attention and be looking for these characteristics and be praying for these characteristics among your brothers and sisters uh, here in the life of the church. So number one, older men. He starts in verse two. He says, older men are to be sober-minded. It means they should be clear-headed. Of all people, older men should have a mature view on life and different circumstances and situations that may be challenging and, and need that mature, godly wisdom. Those who are older in the church. And let me just pause right here and say, hey, we want to be a church that mirrors our community, which means we will necessarily have people from all generations and ethnicities, and and you can go on down the list. But we, we want to be a church that has older men and women and younger men and babies, and we need the wisdom and maturity of older men and women in the faith because hopefully they're growing in sober-mindedness. They're dignified. It, it, another, it's translated another way to be worthy of respect. And so if you're, if you're an older man, would you... Would you Say that you command the respect of people around you. Not because you're so smart or gifted or good looking, but because of your godliness, because you walk with God day by day by day. This is what Paul's encouraging here. He says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Those last three sound is, it, it reminds us of what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Faith, hope, and love endure, and older men should be exemplifying this in their life, in their love for all people, in their faith toward God, and in their perseverance and steadfastness in life. We should be able to look to older men and see this. And likewise, the truth should be, this should be true for older women. Look in verse 3. It says, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. It's, it's saying that they should be holy in their disposition. They shouldn't be slanders, okay? They have control over their, their mouths. They respect people, want what's best. They, they don't become unbecomingly prone to get tipsy on too much wine. They're not slaves to wine, but on the contrary, they are to teach what is good and, and to train young women. And then he's going to go on and he's going to give qualities that should be true of younger women in the church. And I would just point out that, you know, don't be kind of fooled by the transition here because obviously what Paul is going to say to younger women should also be true, consequently, of older women if they're going to teach and train these things, right? So older women, keep paying attention. Young women, what are they to do? Well, it says in verse 4 that they should love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, and kind. So, so what, do we, what do we have here? Well, um, 
let's just kind of clear the air here. This does not mean that women cannot work, okay? Some, some churches out there somewhere may, may say, hey, women should only be in the home. They should not have a job in the community, all right? That's not what we see in Scripture. That's not what we believe that, that we see in the totality of Scripture at all. Now, I think what we can glean from this and what the, the tenor of Scripture is consistently is that a woman's priority should be the home. It should be their family. They should love their husbands and their children in such a way that their family is thriving. That may or may not mean that they are what we know as a homemaker, someone who's at the home all the time, and their full-time job is in the home. And we encourage that. We support that. We, we applaud moms who choose to do that and are able to. But at the same time, we also applaud and encourage those who may work part-time or full-time and can still make their home the priority of their life. In fact, this is what we see in Proverbs 31, maybe the greatest chapter for on what, what a godly woman should look like. This was a woman, it says, who knew how to work with their, her hands, be industrious, and at the same time, lead, help lead her family very, very well. So as my wife called it this week, P31. If, if you need to get on board with P31, okay, I've been, we've been married for almost 60 years now. Some little thugs rub, rubbing off on my wife there. Um, women, ladies, own Proverbs 31. It's such a great and beautiful chapter that teaches us what it looks like to live a godly life as a woman, period, older or younger. And then also, it, it says that they should be kind and submissive to their own husband. So let's address this for a moment. What we see here is this, this command to submit means to voluntarily place yourself under the leadership of another. Others have said that, that, that a woman in the home, a wife, should have an a disposition to yield and an inclination to follow the leadership of her husband. Now, this is certainly, you know, controversial teaching in, you know, 21st century America. You know, like, aren't we all equal? How could this be? And the answer, of course, is yes, we all are, e are all equal. All equal in God's sight. The gospel makes that clear. The gospel was revolutionary for bringing the women to their proper place in culture and society and even in the home. It's the gospel that, that, that helped see all those things happen. But at the same time, in God's wisdom, he has an order like he does in the church with leadership. He has an order in the home that he knows is what's best for the home. And so let me just give some encouragement for, for you wives out there. Listen, you are to be Submissive to your own husband, not every man in the world. That's not what the text says. And if you struggle with this, you say, man, you know, I'm not sure if I'm on board with this. This is all cultural. Well, we could go to 1 Timothy 2, and we could go to creation, and we could do a Bible study on that that we don't have time for today. So if you're wrestling with this kind of teaching, it's okay, okay? And not everyone in the evangelical world agrees with our understanding of, of, the, of the scriptures here. But, but I would just say this. If you struggle with what it looks like to be submissive, would you just consider Jesus? Jesus was submissive his whole earthly life to the words of the Father, the will of the Father, the power, knowledge, and status of 
the Father. Jesus willingly placed himself under the authority of his Father that he might fulfill his mission best. What a great example we have. And what a great, by the way, men, responsibility it is to be leaders of our home. This is not something that we take lightly. It's a great responsibility, one that we should do so very well. Last point, women, never follow your husband into sin. We, 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 we have a submissive, yielding spirit, but, but never following him where God would not lead you. So this is what Paul says to younger women, and then he transitions then in verse six. Very short, by the way. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, period. That's it. Young men, be self-controlled, period. So, so younger men are often filled with energy and passion and sinful desires, maybe more so than any other group. So he just says, Titus, urge the young men to be self-controlled, to live under the, the control of the Holy Spirit in their lives that they might live life to God's glory. And we can presume because of the placement here that, that Titus was probably a younger man, probably not as old as, as some of the ones that are uh, described in the early verses. And so he, he goes on to tell Titus, he says, show yourself, verse seven, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So Titus was to be this model of good works in all things that people might look to him as an example. And then finally, we have this other, this other group in the church. You see in verse nine, it says slaves. Some translations uh, translate that bond servants. And, and we have to keep in mind here, okay, when we're interpreting scripture, that there is a, a historical gap. 2,000 years later, we are today. There is a cultural gap. And so we have to understand what was going on in Rome at the time. Because let's face it, as Americans, when we think about slavery, we think 19th century and before history of what that looked like in our own country. And that's not what was going on here, Okay. A third of all Roman citizens were slaves. Sometimes they volunteered to work. Basically, it was like indentured servanthood, okay? And, and, and so they, um, they were most of the time treated with respect and dignity. And Paul here, nowhere in scripture we have an endorsement of slavery. In fact, if you go read 1 Timothy 1, you're gonna see Paul denounce it. So the, 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 the closest parallel that we have for verse nine is really employment. It's doing our job in such a way that we are putting our best foot forward, that we're not cutting corners at work, that we're giving it all that we have, that we respect those who are uh, maybe over us, supervising our work and helping us along. So there are some great principles here for how we live out our faith by how we do our job each day that we punch in and punch out. And so we have this instruction, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, those of you who work, this is how you can pursue godliness. And, and let me just give one foundational principle underlying all of, all of this, okay? So how can you pursue godliness 
that accords with sound doctrine pursue godliness through a rigorous pursuit of God himself. So as you are pursuing God, as you are making Jesus the, the supreme treasure of your life, as you are hungering and thirsting for him and being satisfied in him, then he is going to fill you with his spirit so that you can walk in these ways that have just been described in Titus 2. So let's, let's pursue godliness through a rigorous pursuit of God. This is what Paul uh, encourages us with as we, we open our study here to cultivate godliness through living out the implications of sound doctrine. Now, number two, cultivate godliness through intentional relationships in the church. So, so what we can see here is that older women were to invest in younger women, right? Older men were to invest in younger men. It's a great and healthy pattern that we can see established here in Titus 2. And you may say, well, older men's up in verse two and you know, younger men comes back in in verse seven. Is there an intentional, like, is that explicit? Well, even if it's, if you want to argue it's not explicit, I would say, who's writing the letter? Paul, an older man, right? Who is receiving the instruction? Titus, a younger man. So, so the pattern is set. It's, 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 it's a wise one for us to follow. And, and here's what I want you to think about just the nature of the church. Okay, what is the church? A church is a community of disciples. Okay, simply put, a church is a community of disciples. A disciple is one who has heard the call of Jesus, responded by repenting, believing, and following Christ. All right, that's what the church is made up, is a community of disciples. Now, are we to be a community of disciples who come in each week to kind of hang out together, to, to, to hear a sermon each week, to, you know, hold hands and sing kumbaya with some good, you know, players up here? And No, right? So much more than that. We are to be a community of disciples who make more disciples. This is what Jesus did. He called disciples to follow him, to learn from his teaching, to watch his life. And then he, he equipped them to go out and to reproduce what he had instilled in them. So his final words to his disciples were what? Go make disciples. It's what we see in the book of Acts. When the church is, is really explodes, it's because they were going out and declaring the gospel, displaying the gospel with their lives. And so it's not enough just to be a disciple and kind of hang out and chill in the church culture. God wants something so much more for you than that. And let's just be honest here. I mean, this is probably something that is not on everyone's radar here today because we treat church like a fast food restaurant far too much of the time where we come in and get our little spiritual fix and everything's cool and it's a consumeristic mentality. But pastors do not exist just to feed the flock and not see people jump on board with the mission of Christ. We would not be doing our job if that were the case. So if you are a follower of Christ, know that God has something awesome for you. 
that includes leveraging your life for the sake and spiritual benefit of someone else's life to help move them along in the faith. So if you've been with us this year, you know that goal number six of our eight overarching goals for 2012 was to see more disciples making more disciples. And I have to tell you, we're a half, half of the year in, and by God's grace, we are seeing this happen. It's a beautiful thing. We have reason to rejoice. Many of the people who have been connected with our church are not only receiving encouragement and instruction and example, but they're turning around and they're giving that away. That is a good thing. But please forgive us if we're greedy for more of that, <laughs> right? If we're greedy for the things of God. I mean, that's, by the way, not a sin, okay? You can be greedy as you want for the things of God and for God himself. And so we want to see more and more people investing in these discipleship relationships. And where do we, where's the context for this? There are two primary contexts in the life of our church, okay? Number one, community groups, all right? These are smaller groups of, of, of people who are coming together through the week, meeting typically in homes, to apply the word, to pray together, to encourage one another in the faith. So, so it doesn't always work out that way, but there is opportunity to get to know people who are maybe a little bit ahead of you in the faith and a little bit behind you in the faith, a little newer to the faith. And you can receive encouragement and discipleship and you can give it away in our community group. So if, you, if you've not connected with a community group yet, we would strongly encourage that because this is a great context for this to happen. And if you're new, if you're new to Christianity, if you're a new disciple, you might say, how am I, as a new disciple, supposed to make disciples? Well, don't be discouraged, okay? It's not a problem. You need to get discipled, right? You need to be invested and you need to be taught. But don't stop there. Know that as you begin to make progress, you're gonna be able to turn around and give that away really quickly. But notice how I said there are two primary contexts, right? It's not just community groups, but the second venue for investing in the life of another. You ready for this? Wherever you are. How about that? Wherever you are, this is what Jesus said. When he gave the Great Commission, he said, go. And the Greek is, as you are going through life, be prepared to make disciples. It is simply telling the story of Christ, declaring the gospel, showing it with our life so that other people might see the worth of Christ and follow him as well. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, if you're in the church, if you're at work, on the soccer fields, at the grocery store, wherever. God gives us opportunity to share our faith, to tell our story, to help people come to learn what it means to follow Christ with their life. And so we can cultivate godliness through intentional investments in relationship. Listen, if, if you are kind of soaking this up right now, you're saying, you know what? That seems pretty biblical to me. That seems like that's the mission of Christ that he handed down to us. Listen, if you wanna be discipled, if you want someone to come alongside of you and say, you know what? Maybe I'm a couple steps ahead of you in the faith and I wanna help you grow as a follower of Christ, we would love for you to take this connection card and just say, you know what? I want to be discipled. 
I want to be encouraged. I want to grow in my faith. You can take this connection card right on the back. You can do it right now. If you want to wait until, you know, we're praying and everyone's not staring at you doing that, you can do that too. But you may say, I want to be discipled. And then others of you might say, I want to help make disciples. I want to invest in someone else's life. And even better if some of you are willing to say, you know what, I want to do both. So if that's the case, we're going to, we're going to help you grow in that area as a church. It's really a pretty simple process. You don't have to be a pro-Christian to get the job done. But please understand, this is our job as Christians, period. We are all on the hook for this, right? And it's a beautiful thing. So cultivate godliness by living out the implications of sound doctrine through uh, investing in discipleship relationships in the church. And then number three, cultivate godliness in order to highlight the glory of God. So our third encouragement comes from verse 10. Cultivate godliness in order to highlight the glory of God. Listen, Boston, greater Boston, is much like Crete was in the first century. You say, how so? Well, uh, Crete was a place where there were very few true believers in Christ. It was a city that was very immoral. It was very, a very pluralistic society, which is certainly Boston. I mean, no one's gotten upset with us for coming and starting a church here. But when you start talking about Jesus with them, then they want to keep you at arm's length or even worse. So it's very pluralistic, welcoming of everything except for an exclusive view, which, by the way, would be a self-contradiction because they want all views but yours. It just doesn't add up. Uh, but anyway, we don't have to go there right now. So, so, so it was a society that was much like ours. And Paul's concern is that these Christians would live in such a way that points to the validity and the credibility of the gospel to transform our lives. And so if you caught, as we are working our way through the text, he really gives us three different motivators to live a godly life. All right, number one, he says, live a godly life, verse five, so that the word of God may not be reviled. I mean, you live here, right? You have friends who are skeptical of Christianity, right? You have friends who are doubtful that the claims of Christ are legit and really make a difference in our life today. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, live your life in such a way that when people see your life, they can't bring a charge against the message of the gospel. We wanna live consistent so that people will not bring accusation against the gospel. What we would hope that would happen in Medford and greater Boston is that people would see our lives and they would say, you know what? I may not believe what they believe, but I cannot deny that this gospel that they call it is really, really changing their life. And you know what? I'll go a step further than that. And I'll say that this gospel, if everyone embraced it, would radically transform our city based on what I see in these people. So Paul says, look, live a godly life so that the word of God may not be reviled. Number two, similarly, live a godly life, verse eight, so that they would have nothing evil to say about us. I mean, there are people here that can't wait for Christians to fail so they can bring the charge of hypocr hypocrisy, right? 
And so they, they want to look for opportunities to pounce on, you know, Christians that may not live a perfect life. And none of us live a perfect life. But we want to live in such a way that, that we are, with every ounce of energy we have, reflecting who God is so that they might not have anything evil to say about us. And then the last one, which is, I think, the most powerful picture. He says, live a godly life, verse 10, so that in everything, in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let me explain it this way. Um, Marsha, my wife, she doesn't wear a ton of jewelry, okay, but I've occasionally got her, you know, I got her, I definitely got her A-ring, you know what I'm saying? The bling, the bling, bling variety, okay, that was kind of important. Um, but I've gotten a couple of other rings, and, but you know what? If, if, if I buy her a pair of earrings or a necklace or a ring, the point of the jewelry is not that people would look at the jewelry and say, man, what an awesome fill in the blank, the point is that the jewelry would complement the beauty that she already possesses. And she possesses it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> All right. So what Paul is saying is that we would live our lives in such a way that people aren't looking at us. So if Jesus, when Jesus says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world, it's not like we're living in such a way that the spotlight is on us. It's more like we are a floodlight on a house that points to the beauty of the house. So we are, to, with our lives, point to how beautiful and attractive and amazing and glorious and perfect and holy and great God is. That's our job. We live in such a way to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. When we live consistently with the doctrine of God, we highlight the validity of the gospel. When we fail to do so, we cast a shadow of doubt on the validity of the gospel. So let's live in such a way that points to how great God is and how attractive and satisfying and worthy he is of our very lives. So let me just bring this kind of home. When you're at soccer nights this week, when you're at soccer nights, will you adorn the gospel when the six-year-old has come over and kicked the cone out of, you know, bounds four times in the last 10 minutes? Because here's how you adorn the gospel. You practice self-control, right? Well, what, what happens when you have to explain the same drill again and again and again and again? How about let's be sound in steadfastness, Right? What happens when kids are pushing each other at the front of the line, which the first night, Monday night, the very first time you tell the kids to line up, there will be kids up in the front of the line trying to push one another so that they can be the first one, right? It's so just how kids are. Sometimes adults are that way too at the grocery store maybe. Um, so what do, you, what do you do? You set an example of what it looks like to be sound in love, right? So, so Paul says, look, cultivate a life of godliness by living according to sound doctrine, by by investing in, being invested in discipleship relationships in the church and do it all so that you might highlight how glorious God is. I was watching CNN last Sunday night and uh, I was flipping through, it was Piers Morgan tonight. Anybody watch 
Piers Morgan occasionally, and he was, he was interviewing Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone's a, a great a film producer. He has a new movie out. I think it's called Savages. And so it was just, you know, because the movie's come out, he had him on. He's one of the, one of the greatest filmmakers of our day. And, and he's 65 years old now. He's getting a bit older in life. And so, so Piers asked Oliver, he said, how do you want to be remembered? Like at, at, the end, at the end of your life, on your gravestone, like what would the apotheph be? And Oliver Stone sits there for a moment and he just says, filmmaker. And that's all he's got. He says, filmmaker. And, and so Piers is kind of begging for more, okay? So he kind of asked the question again. And he's kind of, you know, like basically saying, is, is, that, is that it? And so he's kind of stumbling at this point. He says, well, I hope that I was a good citizen, even though I didn't ever run for public office. So you have this famous man, this unbelievably rich man, successful by the world standard as anyone could be. And he says that he hopes the legacy that he leaves is as filmmaker and I hope a good citizen. And I, I kind of sat there in the chairs thinking, what? Is that, is that all you've got? I mean, those are, those are great things, but I mean, is, is that the legacy that you want to live, leave with your life? You see, the gospel calls us to and enables us to leave a profound legacy in our life through knowing Christ Jesus as our Savior and passing on what it means to follow him with our life to as many people as we possibly can. So let me ask you as we close, what kind of legacy will you leave with your life? Will it be a godly legacy, one that pointed to the glory of Christ and that invested in others that they might do the same? Or will it be something honestly quite pathetic? Oh, he tried to be a good person. I don't mean to be ugly to Oliver Stone, but to me, there's, there's a shallow legacy to leave and there is a godly, God-glorifying legacy to leave. And the opportunity for us is to leave the latter. Let's pray.